Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes. And this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at burnedbybooks. Let's start the show. An epidemic is coursing through the United States in Molly Lynch's beautiful and unsettling novel, The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman. Women are disappearing, leaving their homes and families, and re-emerging days and weeks later, half-naked, filthy, and with only a vague idea of where they have been, as though it had been a dream. Ada, a Canadian who now lives in Michigan with her husband Danny and son Giles, has seen one of these women wandering naked through the woods, and before long, Ada herself will disappear. Ada's miraculous return, complete with an amnesia about what had happened and where she went, will fracture her sense of connection to the world, to her family, and to anything like a cohesive sense of self. What she wonders draws her back to the woods. Why does she begin to hallucinate that her body is becoming tree-like, merged in a visceral way with the environment itself? Danny, too, will come undone as he desperately seeks an explanation in medicine or history for his wife's disappearance and the enigmatic changes that follow her back from the woods. The forbidden territory of a terrifying woman places us in an all-too-familiar moment of planetary crisis, where forest fires burn and spew poisonous smoke, where pollution kills the plants that produce the world's oxygen, and where the humans that cause this ecological trauma spend their time concocting ways to be increasingly more violent toward one another. Part horror story, part love story, Love for the people in our lives and communities, but also love for the living planet, the forbidden territory of a terrifying woman, asks us to imagine what it would mean to walk away from the societal boxes we have forged for ourselves that are so damaging to humans and to our living planet. What would it mean to take a stand by walking off into the woods? 
an utterly transporting story of what happens when some humans evolve and the rest of society spins itself into dust. Molly Lynch has written a great eco-horror for our moment. Molly Lynch is a writer who grew up on the west coast of Canada and lived in Ireland as a teenager. She worked in Europe and traveled extensively through the Middle East before studying literature in Montreal. She did an MFA in Baltimore during the first wave of the Black Lives Matter movement and became involved in community activism against racist policing and apartheid. She now teaches creative writing as well as literature courses on social justice at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the show, Molly Lynch. Wow, thank you so much, Chris. That is um that was very moving for me to hear your your reading. Um and yeah, that was an incredible reading. Uh, well, thank you so much for this novel. I, I called it unsettling. And I said before we came on the air that I, I I really was deeply unsettled by this book. I read a lot. And and sometimes that means that that things sort of just wash easily over me. But this is a this is a, a, a novel that will stay with me um, and and haunt me. <laughs> what was the genesis of the women who walk away? Did you find something analogous in in the news or history, or did this idea come complete and whole from your imagination? Well, the genesis was um, was very much a lot of what you just captured there in your summary, um, a, a feeling of of sort of real unsettled discomfort within me and a, a question within me that had to do with, you know, outsides, alternative, alternative ways of, of living as a human society. Um, the question of whether, whether or not there could be some other realm that we could, um, mm-hmm. we could occupy and I don't mean sort of another dimension. I just mean, in a way, like another another way of living together in, as as humans in our society. But I had heard about um, a couple of women who had disappeared on the news, and that was just part of a a kind of inflow of of news stories that was and continues to be very much a part of my life. I can't not pay attention to the news. And it coincided with a number of other things that were happening, you know, related to climate change, but also related to other destructive uh, aspects of of social life. And so I think it, it kind of merged with question of, of where these women had gone, merged with um, a feeling of discomfort that I was carrying within me and a tension that I was carrying within me around, um, around, you know, between that discomfort and the sort of efforts to live a comfortable, comfortable life. And so somehow it, it made its way into my, into my imagination. And I mean, there was a very specific moment when I imagined the story and began and began writing it and kind of didn't stop until I got to the end of the first draft. The um, You just said the effort to live a comfortable life, and that just made me think how much 
the the choice that Ada makes, albeit willingly or unwillingly, to walk into the woods is one for discomfort, for being per, well, perhaps comfortable in the environment in a different way, but leaving behind the trappings of comfort and being okay being dirty and being, uh, you know, really sort of much more one with the living aspects of the planet rather than sort of being boxed off from the living parts of the planet. And I wonder how you imagine, you know, that transformation into a willingness to be uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel, you know, that Ada, in a way, is tempted to to go into that natural environment almost as because she feels that it might offer something um, more soothing. There's this mm. this kind of allure there. And so, yeah, while on the outside it appears like, you know, quite uh, rough and and horrible what she goes through, there's this feeling, certainly when she comes back, she has been kind of calmed by something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then certainly in the beginning parts of the novel, she's drawn, you know, she feels this pull toward that space. And I think that pull that she feels is a kind of, like almost desperate desire to get away from the the causes of anxiety that she otherwise feels in in the world that she's living in and a world specifically where she's trying to raise a child mm. um and can't really uh see how to go about doing that in a way that feels like i i maybe uh sincere in some way a lot of the existential terror of the novel comes from the ways in which Ada senses and feels viscerally the destruction of the planet. She feels this intensely and finds herself almost merging in some ways with the ecological world. She dreams that vines hang from her wrists and that her pubic hair is a growing jungle. How does the concept of bodily connection with the environment work in the novel? And is it something that you feel happens in less extreme ways in the material world as well? So I think, yeah, I mean, this an interesting and and quite complex question, but one that really sort of is getting at something very important in this novel. And it has to do with how we relate to to our natural environment. I think that something that Ada senses is that there has been a forced separation of the human world from that natural world. And so part of her longing to to enter the natural world as though it is a space that one could enter, uh, it is has to do with that kind of um, that separation or divorcing that that our society has sort of forced or created by by putting humans somehow separate from other organisms and above them and you know humans as the ones that extract and and sort of dominate and so i think part of what her temptation is is to kind of almost level herself and return to a space in which there is no such hierarchy in which she is she's kind of equal to other organisms and I feel that so part of your question is like, does that does that relate to our actual lives? And and I would I feel that, you know, for me, at like philosophically and existentially, certainly, I think that 
you know, we are hugely mistaken to put ourselves above above the natural environment, above other or- organisms, um, just because of this kind of, you know, something that we presume as being distinct, this this ability to to reflect on our own lives, self-reflective consciousness. Um, I don't think that necessarily accounts for us being higher on any on any hierarchy. That is is certainly something that Ada is is kind of like feeling. But then I think that a part of what she learns in the course of this novel, and a part of what is really important to the narrative itself, has to do with with desire to almost exalt nature or to put it to put it above us. So, you know, she's tempted to to enter it. Um, but what does that mean for for her sentience, for her subjectivity, for her relationships with her family? What you know, it's a it's quite a terrifying prospect. I mean, it's a co- potentially you, you could read it as inviting a kind of a kind of madness. That's so interesting. The the novel tracks Ada's anxiety and disgust with the poisoning of the planet, but the narrative then understands Ada as filtering ecological collapse through things like police violence and the torture rooms and what you write as three-year-old children in stinking diapers separated from their parents at the border. What does it mean for Ada to balance the trauma of a period of ecological collapse with the more focused quotidian trauma of our terrifying politics? I guess I feel like, you know, it makes me want to ask, are are these things separate? Are the the ways that we treat the planet separate from the ways that we treat other humans? And so I suppose um, within the novel, I felt, and I felt conscious of this in in the writing of it, that that there is it's you know the cause of the violence against human bodies is coming from the same place as the violence done to to the planet um, or the destruction done to the planet. That both are coming from a very aggressive um, and domineering tendency within. You know, a very a capitalist society that feels in which, you know, it has been made acceptable to sort of um win at the game even if it if it means you destroy others or the planet along the way. And it, it, is it then a question of scale? Because as I was reading it, I was thinking that Ada feels this sort of great global scale of the planet sort of dying uh, while, but she's better able to kind of, in in a kind of quantitative way, deal with these smaller, more focused scale of these violent things that are happening to other human beings around her. And the one exists as a kind of, as a, as a feeling and an anxiety while the other one feels direct and you can point to it in the paper or you, you can point to it on TV. So are you reading it a bit as though um that she feels the the like climate crisis the threat of of the environment more intensely and personally than than other than other things well i guess it i found her uh, symptomatic of the problem of dealing with climate change which is then on the one hand we have this sort of 
suspicion, the sense of the kind of global catastrophe that, you know, every once in a while pokes its head in this really like um, quantitative way, like with the the fires in Canada, whereas we have this direct, intense experience of violence against people in our society. And that part of the problem is that we don't fully feel in the way that Ada and the women who leave do the um, the aspect of the plant, the living planet. It It's too, it, its scale is too big. In my reading of the novel, um, the, the, all of those things are, are merged in some way. Like she feels all of, she feels attuned to all of these aggressions that are happening this, in the society, the treatment of the earth, the sort of, you know, destruction of a forest in India that is referenced and the destruction of the phytoplankton that she hears about on NPR as she's chopping veg vegetables. And that sort of overlaps with or is collaged with other stories of, you know, migrants being detained and their bodies treat treated in terrible ways. However, the things that are happening to the earth and the response of the earth does play out in a more dramatic way for her because I think that it is the the most intense threat that she that she imagines specifically for the future of her child. Um, and so I think in your question, you're thinking about like how you're I think you're comparing how we as a society might be thinking about climate change in comparison to these women who who seem to be responding to some environmental threats. Exactly. And I think that this is an important question about one of the sort of central themes in the novel, which, you know, has to do with motherhood and the that role. A part of that role that is profoundly difficult in any society has to do with the way that you walk into this role of bearing responsibility for future generations. And I mean, parents do this, but but for mothers, it's the mother is more historically and more so more culturally loaded as a as a symbolic sort of role. Yeah. And there's more pressure. And it's Mother Earth, after all. <laughs> right. And then as you know, so if a woman has a child, I think, you know, I think very distinctly between the act of mothering versus the role that you might imagine yourself as needing to fulfill, um, a role that has been sort of internalized in in our imaginations as women, as you know, any number of things. There are all kinds of uh, images of the of the correct way of being a mother. All kinds of you know symbolic uh, symbols of that. But one of the things that is, I mean, I think so that pressure is like, is a, a very kind of potentially intense thing and something that might cause you to to want to flee. I think that in terms of how mothers relate to something like climate change or, or you know, the, the upheavals of the environment that we're no doubt facing right now, um, it, I would argue that it is um, different than the ways that others might face that, or it is potentially different than the others, the ways that others might face that. Because part of your what you're doing as as a mother, as a parent, but as a mother is um, sort of mitigating dangers. And 
and like casting out and paying attention to what those dangers are. And so when you're in a world in which one of the biggest dangers on the horizon is, you know, rising seas, forest fires, like where are you going to live? These things, it's your relationship with that particular threat is bound to be, you know, more intense. And, you know, this is this is kind of an argument I I'm making without having any real sort of comparative evidence for it. <laughs> because I feel that fathers, other parents, you know, guardians of all kinds, no doubt, um, uh, deal with this. But I think that what we have with mothers is this kind of extra pressure that has come with um, fulfilling that role in some like successful, you know, beautiful, graceful way. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that in a planet that's like totally chaotic? Yeah. And and. You know, Ada's relationship with her son, Giles, is is so important. And yet there's there seems to be even the the meta overlaying question that the novel asks is about the ethics of even bringing someone into the world, mm-hmm. let alone the mothering. Um, and it there's it that seems to kind of really tear at Ada, the intensity of her love for Giles on the one hand and loving being sort of out in the world with him and her anxiety about bringing a, a child into a dying planet. I, th- I think some of what the novel is doing and what I'm trying to do in that novel is almost push past that, you know, to sort of think a little bit about like how. So how do we rather than like is it right or is it wrong? But like, no, here we are as as human beings and we do want to have these lives where we, you know, we create things and we connect with other people. But how do we do that when, you know, the the place that we're bringing our children into is one that is hugely prob- problematic and that we might have, you know, all kinds of ethical quandaries about. Like it, it doesn't feel you don't feel like a harmonious connection to much of the capitalist conditions that we've created, much of the, and surely the environmental conditions that we've created. So it's not, you know, pushing past that, like, is it right or is it wrong? And going, okay, I'm doing it. And here we are doing it. And so how do we do it? And, or how do we do, how do you find some sort of like existential um, harmony with a, a condition that is like fundamentally disharmonious. And so, I mean, not to get into the end of the novel, but I feel that that Ada's journey in this and her transformation in this novel is one toward a kind of toward some form of an answer to that. You know, she starts with this this sort of low grade this the novel starts with this low grade steady discomfort disharmony that's that's everywhere and she feels this temptation and this sort of a sense of harmony when she's in uh you know these small patches of forest urban forest around her home she feels kind of like calmed at first and and then increasingly drawn into them. And then she disappears. Mm-hmm. And when she comes back, there's this sense of, you know, that sense of calm is more like fulfilled for her. And yet she faces a new question, how to return to her family. And that to me is the most interesting question, because I, I feel that, you know, well, sure, we could all just like 
go walk into the woods because we don't like the world we live in. But that's actually terrifying to me. Um, and, and it's more interesting to me to think about how to find a way to live with other human beings. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't want to get into too much of those end parts for, you know, listeners who yeah, yeah, read the book, but I think there are some sort of very important, um, uh, passages. And I mean that like, like she, she goes through some trials, um, that allow her to come, to come out with a certain kind of acceptance and possibly recognition of of things that she doesn't doesn't fully get to fix. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So the on, on, on the same line of the sort of domesticity of the novel, this is, you know, part ecological horror uh, and, and part very much a kind of, you know, a, a domestic relationship and one in which her husband is is desperate to understand what has happened to Ada and to find a name for it. And at the same time, um, the two of them are trying to understand, you know, how do you return from from this moment of of rupture and and what it is a, a family is. Mm-hmm. And so you you look very, very tenderly, very with clear eyes at, at what it means to be intimate with another person, the kind of vulnerability and uh, it requires and the fear that can come with being that open. So your third person narration gives us both Ada and Danny's perception of that relationship. And I wonder um, what your decision was and and how you came to the to the idea that you would have Danny's interiority sort of re- get to reflect as well on that relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his part of the narrative feels very important to me. Um, for one, so that we can step outside of her, uh, of her yeah. subjective um, point of view, and see her from the outside in in some way, and then also so we can feel the the kind of a, a form of a realism of of what he's been put through, of what this actually means, of what this, so that we don't actually like exalt the the thing that's happening with the women so that it's not overly sympathetic with that part of the narrative because mm-hmm. he's both hell yeah 
And it's really I felt I a lot of sympathy for Dan for Dan. Yeah. And I yeah, and I and I fully do. And I and I feel that his frustration with her different aspects of her character are, are you know, that's that's a part of the kind of like growth for both of them, for both of their relationship. You know, it comes from her recognize ultimately sort of recognizing what she has been putting him through. In many ways, I read this story in in a couple of ways. Like I I think about it not as an allegory for anything. <laughs> I didn't intend to write it as an allegory, but soon into writing it, I I started to feel the mythological um, aspect of it, and I I very much wanted to open that without like hammering it over the head and making this a modern myth. I wanted for, you know, a kind of, maybe you could call it magic, but a kind of uh, mythological possibilities to to dictate a part of where this story went. But then on the other hand, I also wanted to focus, keep it, keep it real um, and to, to think about the narrative of the relationship and to keep, you know, a, a focused eye on that. And so that these things are happening to this couple, to this family. They're happening to others. But in many ways, the central drama is this, you know, h- how the couple, how Danny and Ada learn to um, connect with each other, ultimately. Um, and so it's a, a kind of, it is, in a way, there is a very domestic narrative there at the heart of it. Um, a question of like, being, you know, in some kind of discord initially with each other, um, they there's this sense that she's, you know, she has one foot out the door. She's not fully there, like living the life they're living and and appreciating it. Um, and then, you know, to the point that it it kind of really pulls them apart, and she's the one who has to find her way back in. And that to me feels like a human narrative and one that is familiar and and real and important and one that is, you know, um, yeah, it has kind of it, it's grounded in the not the mythological, but the the very kind of mundane. Although uh, it's Artemis, right, who's the terrifying woman of the of Ada's imagination. Uh, mm-hmm. And and you know Artemis is is mythology and in a way Ada's uh, link to a to a deep history of a certain kind of disquiet with how how we enter into and extract from the forest, but Artemis also doesn't really care for the the men who come trampling through her her mm-hmm. territory. So there's a kind of a kind of like gendered domesticity, even to that mythology. I was just going to say that in terms of the the sort of the gendering that happens around mothering, um, and the the gendering that happens, I, I mean, so predictably, but also you're just sort of horrified it when you're reading the novel and you see how society rises up to name what's going on with these women. And it names them as as secret lesbians or women who have abandoned the duties of family and their and their children, and how quickly that sort of turn to to easy misogyny uh, explains any kind of doubt that a woman has 
about mothering or about uh, domestic life. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that sort of the gendering and, and the kind of quick, the quick blossoming of misogyny happens. One of the things happening here is we're kind of recasting that taboo of the mother um, abandoning the family because it's happening on a large scale. And so that, um, you know, it's, yeah, an all too familiar taboo uh, that a mother cannot leave their her child or the, the blame gets put on her. But there was a huge appeal for me in use in depersonalizing this by by imagining it, you know, instead against a drop of even larger calamity. Um, so so the mass abandonment by mothers is of a terribly messy world. And so we have that kind of established in the narrative. But then I feel that the the realism to me, you know, it it felt, well, of course they would still be blamed. <laughs> um, and so, you know, while at the on the one hand, it might, you know, we might have the opportunity to question the larger conditions that that would be causing this phenomenon of of women sort of fuging, like just just walking, just, you know, disassociating and, and leaving the the fear of actually confronting those causes, um, I think, would be, you know, it strikes me as as being the thing that would that would really happen. Mm-hmm. No, so, no know, doubt. So many voices like I, you know, just, yeah, the politics of that is very present. Speaking about politics, uh, you know, by the end of the novel, women are walking away from their families across the globe. But there are particular things about the violence and cruelty of American culture and politics that drive Ada to to think about returning to her home in Canada. Without doing too much aligning of author and character, is there something that you think about as a as a Canadian who lives in Michigan? Um, where recently uh, armed white men stormed the state capitol and others attempted to kidnap the governor. Is there is there some of your own experience in Ada's uh, fear and trepidation with America? Yeah, well, I've had, you know, like quite a fascinating time living now 10 years, um, which kind of amazes me because I had never intended to, to move to the United States. And now I'm like very rooted here. And it's been like an, a hugely eye-opening time for me um, and a kind of like a very good, helpful wake up for me um, and and really, you know, generative when it comes like creatively. Like for me, I, I really thrive on the feeling of being uncomfortable. It's important to me. <laughs> it's really helpful to me. And Canada is a place where I might just go to sleep. Um, even that sounds so wonderful. I just am going to go to Canada and go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. And date, but dangerously so. And mm. so I think, you know, Ada in the novel is mistaken to, to put Canada as being the better place. And as is absolute is, as is everyone. Yeah. There are no armed people on the parliament Hill exactly yet. I mean, there've been all kinds of weird violence in Canada, but, um, But that is, it is not at all, you know, some like separate place, nor is any other nation in the world. And nor is 
is the United States the the singular villain at all. I think what we have in the United States is just a kind of a more accelerated and kind of like more evolved state of destruction. I mean, it's more advanced, like the United States is ahead when it comes to deregulation of, of you know, environment. Oh, yes. Yeah. Ahead of the game. But that doesn't mean that we're number one. All, all of these other countries, you know, aren't full of that aspiration to mm-hmm. just pull back the regulation and just extract. And Canada, absolutely one of those places. I mean, Canada is maybe a sleepy place because it doesn't have the numbers of people. It doesn't have the diversity of races. Um, it doesn't have so its issues can't be as prominent. I mean, with that said, there are important, absolutely important things um, that that happen in Canada in terms of you know they still do invest in social infrastructure. There still is like a, a some you know semblance of of a public health apparatus that is protecting people and things like that. Um, private schools are not really as nearly an issue. You know, it's like public education is is good. University is like minimal. It costs almost nothing, you know. And yeah, I'm making some generalizations. Um, but yes, there are some things that are um, that I feel like there should be much more energy put into, more investment put into. But I I don't feel that, you know, thinking of the United States as the as the sort of like just the bad place is helpful in any way. And I think Ada, you know, to put the blame for her, putting the blame on the place she lives in a certain way is an easy out, um, because I don't think that she's ultimately, you know, that that a kind of place of comfort exists anywhere in the world. Uh, that's just like, oh, now I'm in now I'm in a good place to live. Yeah, that's so well said. Uh, before I let you go, I was wondering if you'd be willing to recommend a few books that you have been loving recently and and maybe a little bit of what's on your your bookshelf. And so I have recently read a, an older book uh, now from the 70s by a Lebanese writer, Hanan al-Sheikh, and it's called The Story of Zara. And it's um, incredible. Incredible, like mind blowing. Oh, wow. Um, and it's a story of a woman who's put through all kinds of emotional and psychological trials as she lives through the civil war in Beirut um, and as she deals with all kinds of, uh, you know, very complex relationships. Um, yeah, a truly, truly fascinating book that really moved me and inspired me. Mm-hmm. Um, very much connected to, I think, you know, I, I think I'm, I must be just drawn to hard subjects. Um, and here, yeah, Hanan al-Sheikh is a writer who has like gone, gone deep directly into the heart of something very difficult. Mm. That sounds extraordinary. And I, I have not heard of it. I'm, I'm very interested. Um, yes, I absolutely recommend it. So I always, I always have the books of Anne Enright nearby and, you know, particularly The Gathering, that book. uh, Oh, I love that novel. Hugely inspirational to me. And yeah, so always recommending Anne Enright. Yeah, that's a great um, 
call to me to return and reread that because I haven't since it was published many years ago now, but I, I very much agree that that's a wonderful novel. Um, but I, I want to make sure that I uh, recommend the wonderful The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman by Molly Lynch. This book feels so necessary and such a, a an important book for for the moment and something that is is transporting with with such beautiful language and craft uh, but that has a has a very strong message for thinking about how we want to shape communities going forward. So thank you so much for coming on to talk about it, Molly. Thank you, Chris. This was such a pleasure. The pleasure was mine. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Molly Lynch for coming on to talk about her feminist eco-horror, The Forbidden Territory of a Terrifying Woman. You can find links to purchase that novel and all Molly's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This will bring us more listeners and allow the show to grow. Next week, look for my episode with the incomparable Victor Laval, whose Lone Women is one of my favorite books of the year. You won't want to miss it. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.